there, everybody. It is Nurse Mo. Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode 152, and today we're talking about EKGs. We're talking about sinus rhythms, basically, not necessarily the EKG itself, but we are going to be talking about some of the components of the EKG that help you recognize these rhythms, and then what might be going on with the patient and what you're going to do about it because not all sinus rhythms are normal sinus rhythm and we'll talk about that in just a bit. Before we dive in, I do want to take a minute and appreciate our listeners with the listener shout out and Britt wrote this and I just want to share it with you all right here. I started an accelerated nursing program January of this year, and my, how things have changed since then. I listen to Nurse Mo when I need a guilt-free study break. Why? Because I still learn. I often find myself thinking back to a pod quiz or topics covered in an episode for help. The first thing I do when we start a new topic in class is see which episodes correlate to the material. I'm so thankful for this podcast and hope I can be half as good a nurse as Nurse Mo one day. Britt, that is so very sweet, and I'm glad that you use this as a way to amplify what you are learning at school. And if you guys have not yet been to my newly revamped website, there is a fabulous feature on there, and it's a directory of the podcast. I know some of you, maybe many of you, were struggling with how to find relevant episodes because, you know, podcast players, they're just listed in order of release date. There's not categorization by topic, and the search features are not that great. So what I did was when we revamped my website, I made a directory page. So if you go to straightanursingstudent.com forward slash podcast directory, all one word, you will go to this coolest thing ever. It's my favorite page on the whole website. You will see that there is a table there and it lists all the podcast episodes, but you don't want to see all the podcast episodes. You want to see all the podcast episodes about EKGs or all the podcast episodes about diabetes, whatever it is. There are tags associated with each podcast episode and tags are like the topics that they cover, the specific topics. So there's a little drop down menu, you choose which topic you're interested in and bam, you get a list of the episodes pertaining to that topic. And you can, of course, listen right there from the website or jot down the episode numbers and much more easily find things on your podcast playing app. So that is a great way, like Britt was doing, looking to see if there was an episode that correlates with material. Great way to do that quick search and find things. I do have to say at least half the time, maybe 75% of the time when a student reaches out to me asking for help on a specific topic, there's already an episode that covers it. So go there and check that out. Okay, we're talking about sinus rhythms, you guys. So when we talk about sinus rhythms, we're not just talking about normal sinus rhythm. And if you could see me right now, I was doing those air quotes, normal sinus rhythm. We're actually talking about the standard rhythms that originate in the sinus node. Now, these rhythms could be too fast. These rhythms could be too slow. They could have some other things going on, or they could be just right. So as you recall, 
from your physiology class, the sinus node is the main pacemaker for the heart. This is that sinus node. That's the one that you want to be working 24-7, 365 days a year. It's that workhorse of the heart, right? And it's intrinsic rate, it's regular rate that it will assume is 60 to 100 beats per minute. And that's what you expect to see in most of your patients. So are we good so far? You guys all got that? So let's talk a little bit about the components of a normal sinus rhythm. It's always easier to learn and notice the abnormals when you've got the normals down solid. So in order for a rhythm to be deemed a normal sinus rhythm, it has to meet three criteria, okay? So first of all, when we're looking at our EKG, and if you guys haven't learned cardiac electrophysiology and how to read EKGs, don't stress about that right here. This will all make perfect sense once you go through that at school or if I eventually and hopefully create a module for that, but you're still going to get a lot out of this episode. So don't give up. Stick with me. But if you have learned cardiac electrophysiology, we're going to talk about that. Not really the electrophysiology so much, but the EKG tracing. And then if you haven't learned it, come back and listen to this again after you learn it, okay? And then it'll be just like the the clouds will part and the sun will shine and you'll totally get all of it. So when you're looking at the EKG tracing, a normal sinus rhythm, all those P waves are going to look exactly the same. And remember, the P waves represent atrial contraction. And when all the P waves have the exact same shape, they all look exactly the same, we refer to this as the wave's morphology. Morphology referring to that shape of the wave. And then all of your PR intervals are going to be the same. And that's that length between the P wave and that QRS, right? The P wave to the R. All of those are going to be exactly the same in a normal sinus rhythm. And then the rate is going to be 60 to 100. So three things for it to be a normal sinus rhythm. All the P waves are the same. Also, I should also mention that every QRS QRS has a P wave, but we'll get into that later when we're talking about heart blocks. And I do believe I have an episode on heart blocks, but all the P waves look exactly the same. The PR intervals are all exactly the same and the rate is 60 to 100. So if your rhythm does not meet this criteria, you can kick it out of that normal sinus rhythm club, okay? It's not a normal sinus rhythm, but it could still be a sinus rhythm. In this lesson, we're going to talk about sinus bradycardia, sinus tachycardia, plus a couple of other things that are still sinus rhythms. They're just not normal sinus rhythm, okay? So first, we'll dive into sinus tachycardia. So when the heart is beating at a rate greater than 100 beats per minute, and that rhythm is originating in the SA node, and it meets the criteria of all the P waves are the same, all the uh, PR intervals are the same, we're looking at a sinus tachycardia. So a great example of sinus tachycardia occurs like if you went right now and ran up some stairs, 
you're going to be in a sinus tachycardia unless you're just in supreme shape. And I commend you if you are. My heart rate would definitely be up. So your heart rate increases and it does that as a normal physiological response to that increased energy expenditure, those increased oxygen demands of your body. The P waves are going to be the same. The PR intervals are the same, but your heart is now going faster than 100 beats per minute. So when we're looking at the EKG of a sinus tachycardia, first thing that we'll look at, we'll notice most likely is the rate. It's going to look fast. It's going to be above 100. Now, if that rate is really, really fast, you guys, like above 180-ish, like we're getting into some more dangerous territory here, you're not going to be able to see the P waves. They're going to be buried, okay? They're going to be buried in those quick, 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 fast beats. In this case, we refer to it as a supraventricular tachycardia. And we'll talk about this more in another post, but I just want you to be aware that you could have a rate so fast you can't see the P waves. Right now, we're talking about a tachycardia that's still able to see the P waves, okay? Sinus tachycardia. And then we're looking at regularity. Is it regular or is it irregular? And it's going to be regular. And you do that by checking your R to R intervals. The P waves, again, there's a P wave for every QRS that is occurring, and that QRS is a normal width. And this is one of the things that just frustrate frustrated the heck out of me as a student. It doesn't really frustrate me so much anymore, except when I'm trying to teach you guys something. And that's when you see different normal ranges because of the different sources and references that are out there. So a normal QRS, you know, standard, you might see 0.08 to 0.10, but then another reference might say 0.06 to 0.12 or 0.08 to 0.11. So there's kind of a little wiggle room, apparently, with what's considered a normal QRS in general, less than 0.12, you'd probably be pretty safe in saying that it's normal. But just notice that if your school is telling you anything over 0.10 is wide for a QRS, go with that, okay? But just know you could go, I think I went to five different, maybe five or six different reference materials today as I was preparing, and I saw it at least four different ways. So just so you know, that happens. And then when you're looking at your EKG, you're looking at your sinus tachycardia, it basically looks like a normal sinus rhythm, only faster, okay? So what causes sinus tachycardia? Obviously, physical exertion, okay? We just ran up the stairs, so we know that one's true. Fever can cause sinus tachycardia, very common reason. Hypoxia, okay, your body's not getting enough oxygen, so it's trying to compensate by increasing the heart rate. Anemia, stress, pain, dehydration, or when the body doesn't have enough volume, um, and that could be volume due to losing fluid or losing blood. Infection, hyperthyroidism, Acute MI, drugs, stimulants, and caffeine. Okay, so those are some common reasons for sinus tachycardia. I would say the most common ones that I saw in the medical ICU would be fever, 
and hypoxia and that low volume state or reaction to, you know, like um, an infection like sepsis. In the recovery room where I work currently, it's usually due to hypoxia and pain or low volume states. Okay, so what are we going to do about sinus tachycardia, right? Nurses see problems, we fix problems. So with most sinus tachycardias, you can usually attack it by treating the underlying cause. So that's basically how we treat sinus tachycardia. So for example, your patient's heart rate's 122, you're not okay with that. You check, they have a temperature of 102.8. Okay, that's probably what's going on. Giving them some Tylenol is going to help their heart rate come down. If they're hypoxic, you're going to put some oxygen on. If they're dehydrated, you're going to talk to the doc about getting some fluids. So you're going to address the underlying issue for sinus tachycardia. So when do we get concerned? When do we get nervous about a tachycardia? So in general, You know, looking at what's considered like a max heart rate for somebody, for most people, that's going to be 220 minus their age in years. So obviously, that number is going to go down as the individual gets older. They're going to not tolerate as fast of a rate. So if your patient is 50, then their max is around 170. Anything higher than that, you know, in a course, there's many other factors that come into play. We're speaking in very general terms here. But anything higher than 170 in someone who's 50, you're going to be getting pretty darn concerned. If your patient's 85, then your max is going to be more like 135. So see the difference there? And how often... I've seen tons of patients, you know, in my days in the ICU, especially plugging along in the 140s. So you got to get in there and you're going to have to do something about this. One of my hugest pet peeves, you guys, and I probably talked about this before, but this just reminded me of it is when a patient has an abnormal vital sign, like a tachycardia, for example, and you go and you get report, and maybe it's your first day with this patient, and they've been there for a couple of days, and you get a report, heart rate is 138, but he's been doing that. It's been like that for a couple of days. I don't know where it started that he's been doing that is acceptable, (laughs) Um, assessment, I would say intervention, but it's not an intervention. It's it's kind of a permission to not intervene. There is a reason your patient's heart rate is high. You got to figure that out. He's been doing that is not acceptable. I mean, you can say he's been doing that. And we we're trying to figure out why. That's fine. But he's been doing that. I didn't tell anybody because he's been doing that. Okay, that's not okay, you guys. So don't be that nurse. Okay, so the other thing you want to look at, your patient's tachycardic. You do want to go back and look at the trends and see, you know, is this an acute change? Has it been trending up? All of those things. You also want to look at their blood pressure. When the heart is beating too quickly, then what do you think happens to the filling times? So the filling times are going to be reduced, and that can lead to a drop in cardiac output. So look at your patient's blood pressure to, you know, maybe earlier in the day when their heart rate was 84, 
what was their blood pressure with that, and now look at their blood pressure when their heart rate is 137 and see if there is a significant difference. If the patient, you know, again, if they've been tacky for a while, maybe they were able to sustain a good blood pressure for a bit, but maybe now they can't. You know, over time, patients' bodies can't compensate forever, and they start to de compensate. So if you've got a blood pressure that's low or even, you know, trending down and you can kind of see the writing on the wall, you're going to have to be addressing this. And just because they've been tachycardic for two days doesn't mean you don't do anything about it. So a lot of times, um, especially if hypoxia is the underlying cause or they've got an anemia, which would then, of course, contribute to a hypoxia, getting some oxygen on the patient can help. If they were out of bed, getting them back into bed is helpful. You don't want them exerting themselves more than necessary when they're already so tachycardiac. And then, of course, trying to determine the underlying cause. Have they just had surgery? Well, the interesting thing about a patient after surgery, it could be a lot of different reasons, right? It could be pain, okay? Hopefully, that's the reason because that's pretty easy to fix, right? But maybe they're bleeding internally, okay? That's super scary. Or maybe they're sprouting an infection, so that's also not great. So look at what could be causing the issue, is your patient volume depleted? Do they need fluid? Do they need blood products? When was the last time an H&H was done? Um, are they meeting criteria for sepsis? You want to look at that. You're kind of a detective working with the medical doctors or the nurse practitioners to figure out what is going on with your patient. And then maybe considering medications, but typically we don't really do that unless the patient's blood pressure is affected and we can't really treat the underlying cause because maybe there's just a, you know an issue with the heart itself and it really does need to be slowed down a little bit. So you could see um, a beta blocker maybe used. You could maybe see a calcium channel blocker used. But typically what you're going to see for sinus tachycardia is treat the underlying cause, okay? All right, let's talk about when it's too slow. And that's a sinus bradycardia. And that occurs when the rate is below 60 beats per minute. Again, you're going to have that regular rate, so the R to R intervals will match up. Your P waves are all there with every QRS. They're all the same. The PR intervals are the same. Your QRS is normal. Basically, it looks like normal sinus rhythm, just slower. The complexes are just a little farther apart. So what causes a sinus bradycardia? Okay, some patients are going to be bradycardic at baseline, and it's because they are in super great shape, and they will have a resting heart rate in the 40s or 50s. Totally normal for that person. So if you get a heart rate on a patient and it's 48, I don't want you to panic yet, Look at the patient. If they look kind of fit <laughs> and they um, don't look like they're in any distress, ask them, hey, are you an athlete? Do you run? Do you do any cycling? Anything like that? A lot of times they'll be like, yeah, I do marathons or yeah, I run 10 miles every day or I run five miles a day or whatever it is. 
athletic people tend to have lower resting heart rates, okay? Hypothyroidism is another reason that a heart rate could be low. Something called sick sinus syndrome can cause bradycardia, and that's a disease of the SA node. And then certain medications, maybe the patient's been taking beta blockers, maybe they took digoxin or too much digoxin, maybe they're on a calcium channel blocker, those things could slow the heart rate. They could have increased vagal tone, which stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. They could be hypothermic. So what's their temperature? Do they have increased intracranial pressure? Maybe you're taking care of a neurotrauma patient or acute myocardial infarction. So those would be some common reasons for a sinus bradycardia, or maybe they're just asleep, you guys. Um, sometimes patients, just when they're asleep, they'll be a little bit brady, but their blood pressure is fine, so we don't stress really about that. So what are we going to do about sinus bradycardia? So the first thing I do when I notice my patient is Maybe they've been at a normal sinus and now they're bradying down, as we say, their heart rate's going down, is we want to see if they are symptomatic. So get in the room and you want to look at the patient. How's their skin signs, the color? Are they flushed? Are they pale? What's their level of consciousness? Run a quick blood pressure while you pop on some O2 possibly if they look like they could be having any distress or decreased level of consciousness or are complaining of chest pain or anything like that. If they're out of bed, you would probably want to get them back to bed without exerting them during that period, you know, and if you need to get help, you're going to be getting help. So determine if they're symptomatic basically is the first thing you're doing. Half the time when your patient's heart rate is below 60, maybe more than half the time, probably even more than that, you guys, to be honest, they are just fine, okay? So you go in there, you assess them, their blood pressure's fine, their oxygen level's fine, they say they feel fine. You're going to probably at that point keep an eye on it, depending, of course, on how significant the bradycardia is. If it's significant, you know, maybe they were 84 before and now they're 48, okay, that's concerning, okay? But if they're 58, just below 60, and they look fine, they may not need any intervention, okay? We really look at, is the bradycardia symptomatic? Anytime you're concerned about a patient, whether you're just questioning because you're still working on your assessment skills, go and ask your charge nurse or your preceptor and see what they say, okay? So these aren't hard and fast rules. I'm just kind of giving you some uh, some guidance on things that you could possibly do. So if the patient is symptomatic, they may need some oxygen. Hypoxia, you know, could be an underlying part of what is going on with this patient. So get some oxygen on them. Get them back into bed if you need to. And determine that underlying cause. So a lot of times patients will simply vagal and that stimulates that parasympathetic nervous system, which causes that sudden onset of bradycardia. So I've had patients vagal because they're having a bowel movement or trying really hard to have a bowel movement. I've had a patient who vagaled and this was, I get, bradycardia makes me nervous, you guys. I'm not going to lie. And I was taking care of a patient after surgery and heart rate went down and I was more than a little bit nervous. I mean, like I went and got the... uh, Robinol, 
use robinol in the, in the recovery room instead of atropine for some reason. And, but it acts the same. It's going to increase the heart rate. I went and got that, you know, for good luck. <laughs> so that if I, if I have it at the bedside, I won't need it. And if I need it, I'm going to have to run and go get it. So I thought I'm just going to go get it. I have had atropine at the bedside in the ICU more times than I can count because I always felt more comfortable having it ready to go. So, um, you know, I had a patient recovering from surgery and suddenly heart rate is like really low, um, high 30s. Okay. Talk about my heart rate did not go down. My heart rate went way up. Blood pressure was okay. But then I always think, are they going to be able to sustain this blood pressure with that heart rate? And for how long can they do that? Anytime there's a change in your patient's condition, you might not see a correlating, you know, let's say blood pressure is the parameter you're interested in. You may not see a correlating decompensation there right away. But it can happen over time as the body loses its ability to compensate. So I'm thinking, okay, can she maintain this blood pressure? And what the heck is going on? And it kind of started around the time when she told me she she felt like she was going to throw up. And I was able, you know, I got the medication for the heart rate. And then I'm thinking about it. And I'm thinking, nausea, vagal. I wonder if she's vagaling a little bit because of all this nausea. So I got some medication. We took care of her nausea and wouldn't you know it. Heart rate went back to normal and I was able to stop sweating bullets. Okay. So braiding down because of a vagal response is pretty darn common. So when this occurs, that bradycardia usually, you know, pretty self-limiting, sometimes not. So, you know, you may have to intervene to get them out of it. When I was a student in my final preceptorship rotation, it was on like a cardiac unit and the patients would have their sheaths in place because they had had a heart cath and then they would pull the sheaths on this unit where I was precepting. And putting massive amounts of pressure on that insertion site at the groin to prevent bleeding and hematoma formation can cause a patient to have a vagal response. So they had atropine at the bedside while they did this. So I found that really interesting. So um, there are times when, you know, maybe they vagal because of that and you give them some atropine to get them out of it. Other times, and maybe most of the time, it's going to be self limiting. If the patient's asleep and their heart rate's really low, what I do is I wake them up, (laughs) see if their heart rate comes up. And it usually does. But if they're complaining about some chest pain, you want to get an EKG stat because they could be having a myocardial infarction. So just be thinking about what could be causing this bradycardia and take some steps to investigate that more or alleviate the thing that is causing it in the first place. And then obviously medications. The ACLS procedure for symptomatic bradycardia is atropine 0.5 milligrams. And then again, in the in the recovery room where I work, it's robinol glycopyrrolate that we use for um, to increase heart rate. And if the patient is crashing, you know, of course, you're going to be following your ACLS algorithms and pacing that patient using electricity. Okay, so what about if your patient looks like they're in a sinus rhythm, but it's a little bit 
irregular. Is it still sinus rhythm? What is going on here? So if you've got what looks like normal impulses that are originating in the SA node, but your rhythm is still not regular, then a couple of things could be going on. Okay, so Probably the most common would be sinus rhythm with PACs. You've got an underlying normal sinus rhythm, but you've got some premature atrial contractions, PACs, here and there. And when they're, you know, scattered around, it's going to make your overall rhythm look a bit irregular, not wildly irregular like with atrial fibrillation, but a bit irregular. So how do you know that that beat that's causing that irregularity is a premature atrial contraction? So you're going to look at that P wave in front of that extra little beat and nine times out of 10, maybe nine and a half times out of 10, it's going to be visually noticeably different looking. It will have a different morphology. So with PACs, you essentially are just going to monitor your patient for the frequency of the PACs. Um, If they start having a lot of them, they may start feeling like they're having palpitations, having some discomfort or anxiety with that. You would obviously want to check into what's causing the PACs. So, you know, some common causes are stimulants. Maybe they drank a monster drink and a quad espresso shot nitro cold brew. I don't know. Um, Maybe they had a ton of stimulation. Heart disease. Maybe they have hypertension. Maybe they have abnormal potassium or magnesium levels. So check for an underlying possible cause. But for the most part, PACs don't really cause patients any problems. They don't even really notice that they're having them. And it's just kind of a acknowledge that they're there. But be aware of it so that you can keep an eye if they increase or start to cause the patient to have any issues. Sinus arrhythmia, this is a normal irregular rhythm, okay? So it's irregular, but it's normal in some people. It's often seen in kids. It's often seen in young adults. And if you look closely at sinus arrhythmia, at the rhythm on the EKG tracing, you'll see that it speeds up and then slows down. And it does that in variation with the respiratory cycle. So if you've measured out your R to R intervals and there's more than a about like a 0.16 variation between them, then look at how it relates to the patient's respirations. And if it follows a really consistent pattern, it's most likely sinus arrhythmia. And this is completely normal, completely benign, and should be no cause for concern. Again, it's usually in kids and young adults. I have seen it in, um, you know, adults that aren't necessarily young adults, and it's just something that they have, and it's just their thing, and it's no big deal. Okay, sinus block, sinus pause, or sinus arrest. Okay, so occasionally the heart just needs to take a little break, you guys. (laughs) Just kidding. But however, you could have a sinus pause or a sinus arrest or a block. And basically, this is going to be a period where there's no conduction and there's, you know, a gap between beats. So it can be kind of scary when you see it happening in real time. It's like, wait a minute, where's that next beat? Okay, there it is. But there's definitely a gap there. So in a sinus block, there's a total breakdown in the conduction. The sinus node does not trigger. 
So the atria do not depolarize. It just, it's just not happening, okay? So it can be for one beat. It can block for two beats. It can block for three beats or more. The biggest tip is that your P2P interval will remain consistent. And what I mean by that is if your P2P interval, so the space between one P wave and the next, was say two of those large boxes on the EKG tracing and you had a block of one beat, then the interval would be consistent. You would expect the next one to occur where it would be. Does that make sense? So if it was two large boxes between the P to P and then you have four large boxes between the next one, that is normal. Um, a normal interval because that beat that was missed would have been right there in between the middle. Does that make sense? So you have to kind of imagine where the missing beats would be and if they still look like they would be in that consistent spacing for the P to P, that's what is going on in a sinus block. So when the sinus node finally decides to come back from its break, it's going to show up right on schedule, okay? And then in sinus pause, the impulse in the sinus node is delayed. So what you'll see is a longer than usual P to P interval. So when the sinus node decides to show up and get back to work, it might work at a faster rate. It might work at the same rate or a slower rate. So it might, there's going to be some variability there, sinus pause. And then sinus arrest is the period of non-conductivity being typically longer. So if you're trying to differentiate, is it sinus arrest or is it sinus block? Note that in sinus arrest, the P to P interval will not be that perfect multiplier like it was in sinus block. And if you're trying to differentiate a sinus pause from a sinus arrest, the general rule of thumb is that a sinus pause becomes an arrest when the pause is longer than three times the P to P interval. So I know that was a lot. That was kind of advanced concept there. So if you have not yet studied cardiac electrophysiology, studied how to interpret EKGs, you're a-okay. You're going to come back and listen to this again, and then everything will make a lot more um, connections. So I want to do a little bit of pod quiz questions with you guys. I know you guys love doing these and I'm actually very very soon coming out with a podcast completely dedicated to pod quizzes and other really cool tactics to help you study. So different from how we do it on this podcast, it's it's super cool. I'm super excited about it. I can't wait to share it with you. So be on the lookout for that. The name of it is Nursing School Study Sesh, and it is super awesome. Cannot wait to share it with you guys. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. I'll pause to give you time to answer. Basically, we're doing flashcards with our ears, you guys. That's how we do the pod quiz. So what is the normal rate for a sinus rhythm. That is 60 to 100. Very good. And where do sinus rhythms originate? They originate in the SA node. Excellent. What are we going to do to treat sinus tachycardia? Let's say your patient's heart rate is 132. I hope you said treat the underlying cause. Very good. What are our biggest clues 
that the patient has a sinus rhythm with PACs. So our biggest clues are that it's going to look irregular because of those irregular premature beats and the P wave associated with those extra beats will have a different shape or a different morphology. Okay, your patient's having a lot of PACs. What two labs are you most likely to check? Potassium and magnesium. Excellent. In sinus arrest, the pause is typically going to be how many times longer than that P to P interval. So in sinus arrest, the pause is typically blank times longer than the P to P interval. Typically three times longer than the P to P interval. So that is it, you guys. That's how pod quizzes work. And if you like those, you're going to just go bananas over the new study sesh podcast. So that wraps up today's chat about sinus rhythms. There are other rhythms that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about atrial rhythms and, you know, so like atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, We can check those out um, on a podcast that will be coming up soon. I will be doing that as well. And then I also want to remind you that our planners for July are available. And you can click on the link in the show notes to get to those. They are designed specifically for nursing students. They are awesome. You can print it yourself at home and totally DIY this craft project. Or you can use the digital version, which is made specifically for like your iPad, your tablet device to use with good notes or notability or something like that. Or you can take that printable one. And you guys, I found the best company to print them for you. They give my customers a fantastic rate. They do a beautiful job. They print it out. They use really nice paper. They bind it, spiral bind it. They have these waterproof, tearproof covers that make it really durable. And they will even put monthly tabs on if you want. So super great. All that information is available when you go and check out the planner. So I wanted to let you know about that. And then next week, we are going to be talking about something that puts terror into the heart of every nursing student and every new nurse. And that is your first code blue. So I will see you back here next week. And we'll talk about that. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.